0: Please turn with me now to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea, and that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, And gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you. And you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We recognize that in our sin and unbelief, we do not see it for what it is and what it must be. Heavenly Father, we therefore ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive these good things from you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come to Luke chapter 17, and the context is again... Uh, In the previous chapter, Luke 16, verse 15, in in the midst of many uh, illustrations and parables and teaching material, there are a few comments that explain to us what the situation is, and this is the main one that we, we have to go on in this particular section, Luke 16, verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, Jesus immediately goes on after that in chapter 16 to explain their faulty thinking, to poke holes into it, actually to to deconstruct it entirely, to show just how wrong that they were. But he wasn't done with them. He goes on then to give them this illustration of what was going to happen then. What would be the consequences for people who thought along those lines? And of course, he speaks of the rich man in hell. But he was still not done with them. Because thus far, he had only focused on the consequences of that sort of thinking the idea of having two masters of trying to serve mammon and also serving God for themselves. But what about acting in a private capacity? What what about those who, who were serving as teachers for God's people, those who stood up as teachers and examples to God's people? Were there any further consequences for such? And the answer is yes, absolutely. There were certainly going to be consequences for those who led God's people astray by their bad teaching, by their blasphemy, actually. But certainly also by their false teaching and by their their terrible example, things were going to be very bad for them in eternity. It would be better for them that a millstone were hung around their neck and they were cast into the middle of the sea than what is going to happen to those people who lead God's people astray. But even here, God's, the, Jesus still has as two audiences as he previously had. He was speaking first to his own disciples. The the Pharisees pipe up, and now he's speaking to the to, to the Pharisees, and now after speaking to the Pharisees, he returns to his own disciples. And of course, this interplay, this alternation, goes throughout the whole Gospel of Luke. And sometimes he speaks on one uh, totally different, discrete issue to the Pharisees and one completely different issue to his own disciples. And what do you know, sometimes he's actually speaking about the same basic issue in different ways to both of them. And that's the situation here. He goes on because it is not just the, the, the Pharisees who might just cause a problem for one of his little ones. It's not just the false teachers that might offend one of those little ones. It's also the disciples themselves. In fact, you might say even because they're always around them, they'll always be present among God's people. Maybe they're actually the bigger possibility of offense. And so Jesus speaks to them as well. He says that they need to take heed to themselves. Well, we'll explain what it was that they were at risk of doing in terms of offending these little ones. But something that ties these things together, the section that we're in this morning, which is from verses 1 to 6, is a reference to the sea. Both in verse 2 and in verse 6, there is a reference to the sea and things that end up going into the sea. Well, that's the title then this morning, What Goes Into the Sea? That's our title. And the three points are, one, offenders, two, forgiven sins, three, trees. It's very easy, isn't it, children? Offenders, forgiven sins, and trees. These are things that go into the sea. First of all, offenders. Verse 1, then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. But woe to him through whom they do come. Now, Is impossible. What are we speaking? There are two different kinds of impossible, and actually in in the Greek language there are at least two different ways of expressing something being impossible. And there is something that is impossible due to lack of power. There isn't enough power to do it, to pull it off. That's not this word. This is the other kind of impossible, that it just simply does not happen in the experience of mankind. It just doesn't happen. It is inevitable, in other words, that offenses should come. It's going to happen. Sadly, something that we all know is true. There's not a single one of us who cannot say, yes, that is absolutely true. Offenses do come. And what's inevitable about this? It says offenses. The word, again, is scandal, causing someone to stumble. That's what a scandal is. It's not something that just happens privately. Okay? That's, there's sin, but what is scandalous about it is it is a cause for other people to fall into sin. Other people to, be, to be, cause problems through it. And that's what is being spoken of here is causing someone to stumble. And who is being caused to stumble that Jesus seems so very concerned about? Who is it? Well, in verse 2, it is one of these little ones. These little ones. Jesus speaks of his little ones. Now, sometimes that means very specifically actual children, but in more general terms is speaking to one of his ordinary disciples, not the great among them, not the leaders, not the apostles typically, but just his ordinary believers. And he is speaking about those who are going to offend them. Now, who might this be? I think again he is speaking about the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees have been very casual about two different things. They've been casual about the way they're speaking of God. They're speaking against the Lord Jesus Christ with impunity. They're speaking against the spirit as if, he, as if Christ were being led by the spirit of demons. But they're also, in all of this, they're being very casual about the way he, they're, he, that they're dealing with his believers, with his little ones. They're not thinking about how this is going to cause these little ones to offend. They are leading them astray, you see, in their false teaching and in their bad example. They're all very casual about that, of course, but God isn't. The Father actually takes these things pretty seriously. And here's what he says is going to happen to them in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, And he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. It's pretty bad. That thing that was just mentioned, having a millstone tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea, that's the sort of thing that happens to the enemies of pirates. That's the sort of thing that happens to enemies of criminal gangs who want to make a particular example of someone and thereafter to make them disappear in an agonizing sort of way, a death of horrific variety. But the thing is, see, that's not the most frightening thing. That's that's the thing that is good in comparison to what is actually going to happen to those who offend one of these little ones. It would be good if that were the only thing that were to happen to them. Because what is actually going to happen is far worse. That's the situation in eternity for those who cause one of Jesus' little ones, his followers, his disciples, to stumble. It would be better for them, actually, to be cast in the sea. So, first of all, who's going into the ocean in that sense of judgment? And even worse than that, it's the offenders. But second, there's also sins going in there. Because in verse 3 it says this, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Because again, at first he's speaking against the Pharisees. He's speaking against those who are saying these offensive things and causing these little ones to stumble. He's speaking against them. But they're not the only ones that can cause the little ones to stumble. What about the disciples themselves? He says to them, take heed to yourselves after speaking to the disciples. You guys, this is what's going to happen to you. You better watch out. But then you, disciples, take heed to yourselves. Now, how are they going to be a means of causing anyone to stumble? I hope that they're not doing so with their false teaching. That's probably not the situation for the fellow disciples. That's not it. But how might they cause someone to stumble? By being hard-hearted and unwilling to forgive. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that in every story of somebody walking away from the church, in every story of a church splitting and or imploding and crumbling to the ground, there are many stories of hard-hearted unwillingness to forgive. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? It's true. And in God's people, the way in which people are, are typically being brought to stumble has something to do with a lack of forgiveness. And that's why Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. Now, incidentally, to see the connection between having uh, um, this unbelief and, or having, sorry of, of this unwillingness to forgive, and and that little ones should should perish, we can actually look at the parallel patch, passage in in Matthew eighteen eleven. It says this. Matthew eighteen eleven for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Okay, we remember that it's the same basic context as this general as a situation here at Luke. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek that which is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Without any transition at all in the same breath in verse 15 moreover if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he hears you you have gained your brother okay and again i wouldn't even i don't know if i'd even put that more over you that puts too much of a distinction it's just a continuation just a and if your brother sins against you it's the same deal the Father cares about these little ones he doesn 't want anyone to perish it 's not going to happen he 's going to move heaven and earth to rescue them every last one he is sending his own son to rescue them at whatever cost doesn 't matter and then the idea that one of these should perhaps be lost because of your unwillingness to forgive your unwillingness to do what he 's saying to. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone and all the rest of these things. That is not right. Woe to him who makes them stumble. You see, that's point one. Woe to those who make them stumble in their, these other ways. But woe also to those who are unwilling to forgive and therefore cause one of these little ones to be lost because that is not the will of your father. He is not going to let that happen. He is not going to let these things pass without notice. Now, that's the the larger picture of this. That's the connection between little ones being lost or being made to be offended or uh, scandalized by things and also our unwillingness to forgive. Here's the basic idea. Here's the instruction. If your brother sins, what should we do? Rebuke him. Simple as that. It, it sometimes seems so so very simple. How could you not know it? But funny enough, people all around, they will tell everybody else on the whole planet. But they will not tell the one who has actually for, offended them, who has actually sinned against them for reasons that I do not know. In their hard-heartedness, they seek to... They don't want the thing to be dealt with. They don't want it to be forgiven. They don't want it to be uh, uh, taken away. Rather, they would prefer to keep this... To to treasure it, to use it against them and to slander them. Jesus says very simply, You go and you rebuke them. Go and rebuke them. And if he repents, forgive him. Isn't that great? Pretty simple, isn't it? How many times? Because of course now we're starting to count up, how many times? One, two. Well, you know, the common understanding that were given by the teachers at that time were seven times. And even that was considered to be pretty generous, right? I'm sure there are people that said three strikes and you're out. But no, the, the, the broad-minded teachers of the day said, nope, seven times. Well, as we know, in another place, Jesus says it's not, it's not seven or even 70. Maybe some others would say as much as that, but 70 times seven. In other words, it's, it's infinite. It doesn't come to an end. The willingness to forgive can never come to an end because there's this bottomless sea of forgiveness, you see. That's at the root of it. At the, at the root of it is not your situation. It's not the situation of one man owing another man something. To, It is a situation of disciples who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, whose own sins have been been cast, as the word of God says, into the ocean. And there to disappear from view. And if that is the way that your sins have been dealt with, how should you deal with one another? Can there be an end to the number of forgiveness? Certainly not. Certainly not. Now, as I say, this is this very simple procedure. If your brother sins, you rebuke him. If he repents, you forgive him. That's the end of the story. But what might happen to you if as you as a Christian refuse to forgive? Again, you just might offend one of these little ones. And the father does not look kindly on that. Because, again, that's not the way that you've been treated Think again of the principle I know I said it. You know what Matthew eighteen goes on to say, to give an illustration of this? You remember the wicked servant, the unforgiving servant. That's what it goes on to say. So all the same context. Matthew eighteen thirty-two, then his master, you remember this master who is forgiven a huge, huge debt, uh, this this just because he asked, he forgave him this whole gigantic debt that he would never pay off no matter how long he lived. And he was not willing to do that with his fellow servant. And here's how the, the is explained by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 18, 32. Then his master, after he's called him, said to him, you wicked servant. Why? Has he sinned in some way? No, he's been unwilling to forgive his, his fellow servant. That's the issue. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Pretty bad, huh? It's worse than that. So my heavenly father also will do to you. If each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So many words that bring me pause in God's word. So many words that bring to a a close all distractions and all other things. But I, I hope these words do that for you in whatever situation you are. It says so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So what needs to go in that ocean? The sins of those who have sinned against you and have in any way come and ask for forgiveness of them. The third thing that goes in that ocean is trees. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Why did they say that? Increase our faith. Because of what the Lord has just asked him to do. To keep on forgiving their brother, no matter how many times the brother sins against them and comes and asks for repentance. Again, they would have regarded that the original requirement of the day to be challenging, a very finite number of times in, a lot, in, in forever. But this, this thing, seven times a day, really infinite, of course, that seems impossible. And they realize that their faith is not sufficient. And they say, increase our faith. That's really important this, you, that you see the connection here. That's very similar to the way it is in Mark 9. And one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. It foams at, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. He answered and said, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? And Jesus goes on to explain, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out when said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you see? I don't know if you get it, what I'm, what I'm saying. But are, we really have two problems in this life, okay, as, as Christians. Of course, we have another problem. If we're not, we have, we're sinners in the hands of a holy God, and that's the thing that must be addressed by the blood of Christ, But as Christians, we have two problems, and our problem, it's always one of these two things, either a lack of love or it's a lack of faith, sometimes both. When we are unwilling to obey, I think it's a lack of love. When we think we are unable to do what we're called to do, it's a lack of faith, you see? And so when the the disciples couldn't do this thing that they were supposed to do, it's because they, they didn't believe. And now that's what the disciples are saying. We, we can't do this. This thing that you're talking about, forgiving someone no matter how many times they offend us and, and ask for forgiveness, that's impossible. We cannot do it, increase our faith. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. And so that's what the Lord addresses. Their lack of faith because that's what's behind their inability to forgive so much. And he says in verse 6 So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Again, for those who are unfamiliar, mustard seed is very, very small. It would have been the smallest of the seeds that ordinary people would be familiar with, and even today you see it, it's very, very small. And even that faith, you see, is sufficient to do great things. The example Jesus gives is you say to a mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, notice it's not, incidentally, just being cast into the sea loose, which is something you might get if you just read quickly over it, but actually be planted in the sea. Now, that's doubly impossible, of course. Mulberry trees aren't planted in, in the sea. That doesn't, doesn't typically work that way. But he's just, in fact, you have to say, why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone decide, today, my great achievement will be to plant this mulberry tree in the middle of the sea? Well, of course, there is no reason to do that. That's the point. It's just an example of something that is otherwise completely impossible that would theoretically be possible to those who believe. Now, that's what Jesus is saying, okay? Jesus doesn't say that this is a trivial matter to say, oh, you disciples are really overestimating what is required here. You can do it. Everyone can do it. Of course you can forgive people. It's easy. Give it a try. No, he says, "This is yeah, you're right. It's, it's sort of like you just on, and without using your hands, speaking to a mulberry tree and, and being plant, pulled up by its roots and being planted in the middle of the sea. But you know what? That would be possible to those who believe. And so, also, is this utterly impossible thing that I'm asking you to do and, ask, and offering continual and unlimited forgiveness to your brothers and sisters. It's not easy, it's an act of faith, you see. And that's the thing. Now, it doesn't require, so it, it's, it's hard, it requires faith, but thankfully, it does not require great faith. Just it requires some faith, even the least degree of it, because, you see, just like our salvation, our salvation is by faith, but it's not by the, the volume or the quality of that faith. It's merely by the existence of that faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that is sufficient. Okay, Again, it's not faith. Imagine if you had a sort of uh, a, a index of faith, and theoretically Christ had an index of 100 and some certain super saints had an index of 90, and, and the threshold is somewhere at 50. And if you have 49, that's not good enough to save you. But if you have 50 or 51, that'll, that'll do it. Okay, that, That's not the situation of the Christian faith at all. If there is faith, if it is present to any degree, that is what connects you to Christ, who is the great source of these things. Where I, I think I tried to describe it in, in times past has to do with electronics all right there are transistors and there are relays that control huge amounts of, of energy. Just imagine there's some relay that can that controls 10,000 volts at some huge current some giant relay and the signal voltage for turning that thing on and off is tiny okay now the the actual power that comes through this thing is is tremendous but is merely it doesn't matter. Whether the thing that connects its signal is, is the size of, of a gigantic power cable or whether it's a tiny strand of what would go into a little earphone, it's all the same. Because it is the signal then that makes the connection. And the same power happens one way or another. That's our faith. Whether it's a gigantic faith or just a tiny, tiny mustard seed, that's what God is asking of us you need to believe that christ can make you able to forgive people over and over it's not an exercise of self-help it's an exercise of faith but even the faith of a mustard seed is enough and so unbelief along with trees go into the ocean as well Well, with all these things now in the sea, what are the applications for us? The first thing is that we need to be very clear. We need to be clear on grace. Because grace, you see, is not an easy thing to grasp. Not even all that easy sometimes to know whether someone understands it, if you're speaking to them or not. But there are sometimes certain indications, as with certain diseases, there are maybe some indications that say somewhere there's a problem here, and this, one, for, uh, this issue of forgiveness or lack thereof, that's one of them. That's where our misunderstandings about the nature of grace, the way that we're saved, they all kind of come to the surface. There are those who are unwilling to grant forgiveness like what Luke 17 demands, and very often they have some sort of misunderstanding about grace somewhere in them. They think that they were not and are not. All that terribly bad. Yes, they have sinned, but they have strayed within a certain set limits of transgressions that make them savable, that make them okay within that, that certain boundary. And they can understand why Christ would forgive them because they've been in this, in this group here. Now, they, they know they're sinners, but they're kind of respectable, acceptable kind of sinners. And if they see other people doing something outside that limit that they have decided, then it's hard for them to forgive because they're not really sure if they would have been forgiven such an offense. In other words, to put it more bluntly, there is works somewhere still in their idea of what justifies them. Now, that's not all that exotic of a disease. Actually, that's fairly common because that's the default setting of the human heart. Whether at the beginning or even creeping in sometime else in our Christian life, we are always seeking to find some little way to sneak works into our idea of justification. It's always there. So if you find in your heart, if you find yourself unwilling to forgive somebody, you have to say, there's a problem here. I am not fully embracing the idea of being saved by grace. Because if I did, if I understood the enormity of my sin, if I understood the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in saving even someone as terrible as me, the chief of sinners, then I would have no problem in forgiving my brother this small offense. So we should, first of all, be very clear about the nature of grace. Secondly, we should be clear on what God is going to do. Be clear on what God is going to do. Because very simply, it's going to be bad for those who cause problems for God's people, isn't it? Right? That's, that's useful. That's helpful as we're dealing with those particularly outside. In the larger scheme, Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Right? This is the basis for how we deal with people who do us wrong, is that God is going to take care of this. Okay? Let's imagine that they really are those who cause offense, that they offend one of these little ones. They've offended you. If that's really true, they're unrepentant in these things and remain that way, never do turn to Christ, they always are an enemy of of Christ and his people, what's going to happen to them? It'll be unimaginable. So bad that in comparison, it would be a good thing if merely a millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown in the middle of the sea. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And there's no room left for us then to want to take any vengeance. The best thing we can do is if our enemy is hungry, to feed them. And if they are thirsty, to give them a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on their head. And so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Be clear about this. In dealing with someone who has offended you, you are either dealing with Christ, one of Christ's blood-bought sheep whose father watches over them with zealous care and takes every little offense against them with utmost seriousness. Okay? Okay? Better forgive them. Or ounce they are Christ's enemies, earmarked for a vengeance in eternity that is terrible to contemplate. Either way, where is the place for us to take vengeance? None. Not at all. We dare not. Be clear, therefore, on what God Himself is going to do. Thirdly, we need to be ready to forgive. Now, look, we have lots of areas in which we need to grow as Christians. It's true in our knowledge, in our love, in our joy, in our holiness, in our sanctification, of course. We, we have much room for improvement. But there are priorities, you see. There are certain things on the list that we have to address. And there's one thing that we cannot allow ourselves at all, even for another minute, and that is an unwillingness to forgive. Okay? It must be utterly rooted out in a completely... As I say, it will destroy a church. There's nothing uglier than this uh, this unwillingness to forgive, this holding grudges. It is repulsive to man. It is repulsive to God. It is a cause of great offense. And all throughout this whole teaching, the implication is given that the sheep are endangered by this unwillingness to forgive. That's why you've got to take heed to yourselves it's dangerous and we know that pride is a heart of it of course it is pride wells up in us and that's why we think that we're better than we are that's why we think that others are worse maybe than they are and we don't see how bad we are We don't see how much we've been forgiven of and are being forgiven of. We don't see the necessity of forgiveness because we sort of make ourselves to be sovereign. We decide who and under what circumstances we might forgive them if they prove themselves worthy to our sovereign selves. That's pride. That is, of course, unless the Holy God does not first put a millstone around our ungrateful necks and send us to the tormentors first. But think about that when you try to be sovereign in the way that you forgive people. So we need to be ready to forgive and our granting of forgiveness. It must come very quickly and readily and sincerely. But also in this readiness, we since we're speaking of brothers, we're speaking, by the way, of both sides here. We've got both sides here, those who need to forgive and those who also need to ask for forgiveness if they've been rebuked, if, they, if things have been brought up. This is a requirement. So let's not make it harder. On the other hand, let's get in the habit then of keeping short accounts with one another. Not only should we be ready to forgive, but the other side of that is that we should be ready to ask for forgiveness. Now, if you say, I don't even know that I've offended. Well, fine. We've just seen it's the other party's duty to bring it up with you, to rebuke you in one way or another. And if that's not happened at all, then you're in the clear. You're fine. But, you say, maybe they have kind of let me know. But I don't think that I've really done anything that I need to ask forgiveness for. There's a problem. There's a problem, isn't it? And that's why we must always pray, Lord, show me my sin. Because we are so blind, we do not see it. And keep in mind, there are at least three layers or levels of sin. The words and the actions themselves if they are not 100% in accordance with all of God's holy law and all the perfect standards of the Sermon on the Mount, absolutely sure to stand untouched as pure gold in the fires of the great judgment, then there's sin there. Now, that's a picture that is given to us by Paul and Corinthians of this, these works that on the last day are going to be tested by fire. And, and, and a lot of them are going to be burned up, the wood, hay, and stubble. But on the other hand, there will be gold and silver and precious gems that remain. And, and you know what that implies? It implies that in our whole body of work, it is mixed. There will be some things that God has done that are going to withstand the furnace and will say that it's pure and right and good. But there's going to be lots of other things that are burned up. And that must be our attitude to everything that we do. We say, you know what? Yeah, okay, there's gold somewhere. There is a lot of wood, hay, and stubble all around it. And therefore, there's always some sin in everything that we do. See? As I say, there's the words and actions themselves that have to be 100% in accordance with this, this law, but there's also our motivations behind them. Right? Were they good and right motivations? If it's not done from pure love to God and to our neighbor, then there is sin there. And then there are the circumstances surrounding them the time and the place and the way and the manner that they were communicated, if any, if even wisdom was lacking, if the fruit of the Spirit was lacking in the way that we spoke of these things, there was sin there. And you say, Bill, this is impossible. That means that there's sin always. There's always something to repent of each and every time. Now you've got it. That's right, you've got it. There's always sin in everything that we do at one of these layers at least. And so when someone happens to point out some perceived faults, and that's your, your opportunity then to ask of repentance of this one thing. You actually say to yourself, there were the 10 things that they didn't see, but on this one, this is the opportunity to ask forgiveness for the sin that's there. Now, are they always going to do the best job of pointing it out? Certainly Not. Even worse, are you going to do the best job of recognizing it when it's pointed out? No. Because we are so defensive. Is there a way to justify yourself? Yes, absolutely. You know, there are two people that were particularly good at justifying themselves. Uh, one of them was the Jesuits. They had something called Jesuit casuistry in which they found a way to clear themselves and other people of virtually any sin. You could, anything you could imagine. Murder, you name it. They could find some sort of way that would justify it. The other uh, people, of course, that were known to be good at justifying themselves were the Pharisees, right? So you can join that club if you want, or you can join another club, which would be the Puritans. The Puritans were known as those who did a very good job not of, of, of finding some way to justify themselves, but finding ways to condemn themselves in recognizing the sin that existed at some level, at some part of the things that they did. And they didn't let themselves off the hook very easily because they knew that this was not seen clearly. This was not using God's eyes to see themselves and their works. So we must be very ready both to receive and to ask for forgiveness. Now... Fourthly and finally, I realize that this is coming tonight, but I guess that's why I'm bringing it up now, and that is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a means of increasing our faith. If not technically speaking, given precisely to increase our faith, it is a help for our deficient faith. Let me just read to you the larger Catechism, 172. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. And in God's account has it if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it. He knows he doesn't have it and unfeignly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity. In which case, because promises are made and this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. Lord, strengthen our faith. One of the means that he is given precisely to do that is the Lord's Supper. And how thankful we are that we expect to receive of that this evening. Let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we see these things that will be, have been, or should be thrown, cast into the sea. And Lord, when we consider the offenders, those who cause one of these little ones to stumble being actually cast there but actually something even far worse happening to them lord we are fearful and we pray even for our enemies that they would come to repentance that they would turn away from this destruction and lord that we ourselves certainly would have no part in them at all and that we would rather suffer ourselves to be defrauded and suffer ourselves all manner of things to happen to us rather than that one of these little ones should be offended because of us. And Heavenly Father, we know, Lord, that truly it is not easy to do this. It is not easy to offer forgiveness. We know that we should so easily cast the sins of those who ask forgiveness away into the the sea, never to be brought up again. But it is hard. And so, Lord, we with the disciples certainly say, increase our faith. And Heavenly Father, we're grateful indeed that you can do these things. How we pray, Lord, that this church would be characterized by those who are so willing to go through this process, so willing to be reconciled in the habit of of bringing things that truly are faults that need to be brought up. We know that not everything needs to be, but... Lord, that these things would not, if if they are worthy of being brought up to other people, that they would first be brought up to those who have done it themselves, that they might have the opportunity to repent and ask forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that those who who are receive this would be so very willing both to admit their own fault and to ask forgiveness. We pray that you would uphold us and that none would be offended or led astray because of these things, but... Rather, Lord, we would see your power working in and through us as we are characterized by this willingness to forgive. And, Lord, in all this we know that in the end vengeance is yours, you will repay. And therefore, Lord, let us not ourselves ever seek to take these things in our own hands. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.